welcome back to the TTRPG Freelancer Mentorship Podcast Series. Um, I am the host, I'm Crystal Mazur. Uh, this is our uh, uh, episode for the writing process. So a uh, brief overview of this series is that uh, the goal is to help people who are interested in freelancing, who are curious about how freelancing works or struggling with parts of freelancing, to connect with established writers as well as newer writers to kind of help themselves get past that, learn more about that, um, and become a little bit more connected with the industry. So if you haven't seen the rest of our series, I highly suggest that you go check it out. We have uh, Getting Started in Freelancing, Freelance Writer Pay and Negotiations, Contracts, as well as several um, in-person convention recordings that I also have up from both Gen Con and Gamehole Con. Uh, so please check those out. Um, my guests today are Rick Hines. Hello. And David Whitworth. Hello. All right, so we're going to move on to news. All right, uh, so I'm going to have my guests kind of talk about some of the stuff that's coming up for them, where you can find them in person. Um, and again, we'll kind of bounce back to this at the end of the podcast. So, Rick, why don't you start? By the way, I love your sound effect that you made to transition <laughs> over into news. That was epic. So for those of you who are listening who don't know, I'm uh, Rick Hines. I write sarcastic crap about the end of the world, novels, uh, books, game lines. I've been freelancing forever. I'm usually at conventions. Um, so, And I'm sure I'll talk throughout this entire process about all of the projects that I worked on. But throughout the year, I tend to go do about... 20 to 30 conventions uh some of them i go do an artist alleys on my own some of them i'm invited as a guest out to the show some of the ones i'm as a guest at this year are pensacon florida in february anime milwaukee c2e2 anime central um i'm going to be doing dragon con again this year salt lake city expo uh kineticon basically if you go to my website uh, at some point, or you follow me on Twitter when we get to that later, you can find me at a convention and you can nerd out with me and we can like talk about various things. But my other major news that I have that I'm super excited about um, is I had the lovely opportunity to write the Crow Prayers of the Past, the official Crow RPG game system, uh, you know, with my story canon approved by like James O'Barr and Pressman Films and things like that to tie the universe together. And it actually comes out in January. So like I'm overhauling my convention display to finally be like, I am officially canon in the Crow universe. And if you know me as the kid, goth kid from the 90s, um, I like this is a property that I cherish and love. So that's I, my I didn't I didn't tell David about that. Um, and just it, it. Yeah, it was it was lovely to see that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just yeah. As you, as you say, goth kid from the 90s, that's that's like goals right there. Right? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to get a... Every time I publish a book, I get a new tattoo. So mm. I'm actually getting a tattoo of, like, the crow symbol on, you know, like... Because that's like, okay, I could finally earn this. It's more than just a fandom that I grew up with as a kid. Yeah. And actually working with James O'Barr as well on it. I am yeah. Uh, that, that is... 
Mm. Yeah, it's with Evil Genius Game Systems. They uh, picked up like Pacific Rim. Uh, they picked up a few others. And when I saw that they had the crow, I yeeted myself at them and oh. I did my treatment and I threw it in and I had to get all pitched and approved. And that's a great topic for later on, though. <laughs> but mm. it comes out in January. It's done. I'm going to get to sign the thing soon. <laughs> Adds to the list. Do, 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 do. <laughs> all right. Uh, David, what are some things that you have coming up? Uh coming up nothing really unfortunately (laughs) following that i'm not really sure that i've got anything worthwhile saying to be fair um so yeah i've got nothing coming up um i've got a few ideas floating around that may may take press may may take form next year um but we just finished the kickstarter for eye to the void um a couple of weeks ago we're finishing off the writing for that so the pdf for that should be out probably mid-January we hope um, I just need to finish the writing on it um, and then there's obviously Paradigm Shift which we did through Darker Days Radio a God God Machine Chronicle set in Manchester so um, which as I was talking to Terry from the Mage podcast I realised that I could steal some ideas from that and put it into Eye to the Void which is quite fun but yeah that's that's pretty much all that's happened this year there is something coming out next year we're still waiting on the art for it, but we're still not officially kind of saying anything about it yet. So there is something coming, but I don't. I don't really have anything to say against uh, someone who's just written for the crow. So I'm going to shut up for the rest of this episode. <laughs> no, trust me, you're fine. I still fanboy out about it, like internally myself, and the, to those who are just listening, you can't see on camera. I like will flap my arms randomly, uh, whatever I even mention that I got a chance to do this. Yes, yeah, it's um, it, it's honestly a joy talking to both of you because both of you get so excited about everything, and I love it. Um, <laughs> well, I do, I do so, have one thing which is quite fun to talk about. It's not RPG related, but my next yeah, go ahead. My next science paper is about is it's on it's online it's a, but it's about to go back to the referee for final edits where i basically tell everybody that magnetic fields on a global scale don't do anything which is quite controversial in astrophysics because everybody's like yeah they do lots of things and i'm like nah so if you want to see me argue with science um <laughs> i'm doing that at the moment <laughs> uh yes yes i do actually i I love random, weird, crazy science stuff. I follow, like, CERN and all of that stuff. I'm always, like, diving down into that rabbit hole. Yeah, um, Science is always a good rabbit hole to fall down into, especially yeah. when you're arguing with science. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. We just, been at, we just had a conference here um, last week where there was a lot of people going, you what? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it, it's not what you think. Like, oh, can we work together? And I'm like, yes, yes. Give me, give me all the, give me all the, the people and all the money. Let, give, give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, and then coming up for me, um, I have uh, we just released our Spycraft kit primer a couple weeks ago, um, and as a reminder that we do have the pit primer holiday um, from last year, I think it was a year before, uh, where you actually get to uh, help save Christmas by holding Christmas back from spilling over into the other holidays. <laughs> Only that happened in uh, real life. 
you get to you get to team up with things like Krampus and Barry Lewd, uh, mm-hmm. and all of those fun fun uh, deities to uh, uh, help save Christmas from itself. So uh, check that out. Uh, you can get that at Drive Through RPG. All right, so we're going to start on to our main topic. Um, okay, so I always like to kind of ground everybody into how you got into freelancing or your introduction to freelancing um, to kind of give everybody a perspective as to how long you've been in the industry, where you come from, and your background, because everybody that I have ever met in freelancing has an extremely different background when it comes to those things. Um, so for instance, with me, I'm an educator by trade. Um, and I have been an early educator, which is like preschool, uh, for like 15 plus years. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I love to do is I love to use role-playing games with preschoolers because their imaginations don't let them be held back. And it's, always amazing to see what they come up with because it's nothing that I would have ever dreamed of as a writer to put into a book. Um, and so, uh, coming from that, I started teaching and doing workshops with teachers on how to do this with their kids and their classes in a way that, um, promotes learning and education. And I have a friend who had been in the industry for a very long time. He's been trying to get me to get, get into the industry. And I kept, uh, rebuking and pushing back and uh uh trying to avoid (laughs) as much as possible for whatever reason i can't even remember anymore um and then eventually he sat me down he's like i need you to write a a halloween scenario for kids using this open gaming license it's uh first fable and uh you get to write however you choose to sell the story Um, as long as you're using those mechanics and I am going to get it into a print book. I'm going to buy the art for it and I am going to get it edited and everything like that. You don't have to worry about any of that. You just have to get me the words. Here's the date. You have one month. And I was like, Oh, okay. And, uh, so I got it written, got it off to him. Uh, and he ended up putting, or having um, Aloy LaSanta do the layout for it. And that is how I met Aloy. He put, Aloy hired me for working on PIP System Corebook. And from there, uh, PIP System Corebook went on to win an Annie in 2018. So uh, after that, things just kind of steamrolled into something that I have never even thought would be possible. Um, and that is how I got started in freelancing. So um, who would like to go first and tell their story? Okay. Um, yeah, sure. Um, my, my, my entrance into freelance writing, uh, is all the fault of Chris from darker days radio. Um, so when, when was it must've been just around the same time that crystal joined darker days radio, which would have been what, four or five years ago. I can't remember now. Time has no meaning. I work in millions oh, of I- years. Time you scale. joined before I did. I'm, I'm sure we joined around the same kind of time. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> I, jo- I joined Darker Days Radio when we started up the Dark Hammer series. Um, and Chris was writing 
uh, what was it? What have we got? Hell rides to halt the Warhammer um, scenario, and um, asked me to come in and help him write it. So that's where I started with the writing. Um, we hadn't pitched it to Cubicle Seven at the time. Um, we then did eventually pitch it to Cubicle Seven. It got published, and it's now it's now in about four different languages. It's a very very popular Warhammer Fantasy RPG scenario. And then from there, I got to work on the Age of Sigma roleplay, um, Soulbound. I've worked on the other one, Wrath and Glory. I've got a, a weird 40k folk horror vibe-esque scenario out for that. And then from there, I've just kind of done a lot of um, stuff through Drive-Thru RPG. Um, I've done some stuff for Crystal for the PIP system. And I've just kind of kept it slowly ticking along over the last couple of years. And then this year, I had a brilliant idea as I moved to Germany. Um, I know I have a small, small publishing company in Manchester, two of my friends. I pitched them this wonderful idea that let's do a book on divination. Um, and it went from going, yeah, we'll do a 10,000 word thing to it's now sitting around 33,000 words. It kind of snowballed um, because they let me do what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and that was just successfully funded on Kickstarter. So, um and that's where I am at the moment with it. That's that's the very brief history of David and RPGs. I'm a massive fan of Age of Sigmar, by the way. The lore behind that is really solid. It's so, so so good. Uh, the wonderful thing about it as well is it's so open. There is set places that have set lore, but the, the realms are so open. You can kind of get away with doing... I, I, I got some of the novels back here on my shelf. So um, I'm definitely in this. I don't even play the game. I just like the lore. Um <laughs> Uh, Soulbound is very much hero level gaming. So, um, Crystals, you've played it. You played a pink hair oh, yeah. slayer. Um, yep. You are very much a hero. You're not. You're not like gutter rats in Warhammer Fantasy. You are fully trained up heroes, pointed by the gods, going off and murdering everything. So, um, badass. Yeah. Ah, it's, ah, a great, it's a great it's system. Cute. It's really simple as well. So. So I guess on my end, um, I'm an electrician and an electrical engineer by day, um, project manager. I've been in the electrical industry for since I was like 19 years old. Um, I actually went to college to be a painter, uh, to do like oil painting and, and things like that and be like creative and artsy. And I was like, oh, crap, I have to pay bills. I'm going to go get a day job as an electrician. And I actually fell down that rabbit hole. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. At some point, though, and this is important to some of these like later topics, me being a tradesman in Chicago allowed me to see elements of the city that nobody else really noticed. And I happened to have a very active imagination. And I was also a very big gamer at the time, like running and storytelling all of these World of Darkness games and things like that. And my first official freelance writing was they had these like mind's eye journal like little things for this like LARP and I submitted stuff and it was kind of like open submission it was like the wild west back in that day anybody could turn stuff in and like there was like real no checks or balances and you would just you know hey get published but what happened was is I was in my career as an estimator electrical estimator at some point and I was sitting and I remember just sitting to myself in this office with these fluorescent lights above me and this like dim, you know, 3000, you know, 
uh, 3000 Kelvin, like lighting this orangish light, you know, bathing over me. Like my boss is smoking over a blueprint table and I'm like, I need to do something else. And so I went home, NaNoWriMo happened to be involved for a challenge and I quit storytelling LARPs. I had been storytelling LARPs and these massive games, like 600 people, large games at times. And I was like, okay, I need to take a break because this is like, my life is I was like doing game running and then going to work. And I just wasn't, it wasn't hitting for me. So I sat down and I wrote my first novel, uh, The Seventh Age Dawn, which is sarcastic urban fantasy about the end of the world uh, set in Chicago, where we, a group of anarchists give magic to everybody and all of the consequences that happen with it. And I found that the writing process, me sitting there with headphones, listening to music, just cranking away, being lost in my own head, having my characters argue with themselves in your head was a blast for me. And so I, finished my novel and a friend convinced me to go hire a developmental editor to take the novel to the next stage. And, you know, developmental editors are expensive um, to go through a full length, 140,000 word novel. And I was like, okay, well, fine. I'm going to go do this. I did it. And right after that, Nerdist and Geek and Sundry had a publishing contest where they picked the top five science fiction fantasy novels and they offered them full publishing deals. On a lark, I tossed my novel in for the contest, and I won. I was one of the Nerdist uh, picks. And then shortly right after that, Geek and Sundry is asking, um, they have this series with uh, Matt Mercer, and um, he's passing the torch over to Satine Phoenix, and they actually ask uh, Rob Wyland and Terry, Terry uh, Licoro over at Geek and Sundry, we're like, do we have any writers that know any other game system other than Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm like, yes, I know like 18, everything from like Rifts to all these other, you know, even obscure systems, Deadlands. So I started doing the uh, GM tips while I was working on novel series. And I started submitting to doing some freelance writing for other games because I would interview and cover as press um, officially working for Nerdist and Geek and Sundry and Legendary at this point. I would cover everybody else's game lines for their Kickstarters, their news, you know, what was happening. And there's about four to five years of articles for the GM tip series that I had um, published up there on, on Nerdist. And that gave me a lot of opportunities into larger freelancing. But eventually that novelist side of me wants to own the work that I do. And so I had the bright idea to work with the heavy metal band Diamorte when they were in my kitchen um to say you guys have like cradle of filth black crown initiate grave shadow like all your ensemble cast for your band you have this beautiful orchestral soundtrack i could turn this into you know a small campaign for you guys' band merch right i was thinking just like you david this you know twenty thousand little supplement that they were just gonna like you know pay me for 174,362 words later, the Red Opera was finished. Um, and that was probably the largest book that I did. But then after that, it kind of snowballed, like to going into writing director for another project um, that, uh, you know, is, is, is out there in the world um, to freelancing for several other game companies and lines and doing um, storylines. I write 
less so much on the mechanics. I'm more of the plot person and the, the, the campaign writer. That's because I'm a novelist. I'm still working on my novels and I'm still doing other elements. And I'm even now like doing, um, I've gotten to the point where I'm opening up my own studio with a bunch of other people, Storytellers Forge Studios. And we actually get to let our creators own the rights to the projects that they uh, do. And we have uh, full distribution and publishing. And we get to do novel tie-ins. And this goes back to Crystal's earlier episode on negotiations and contracts on like why this the evolution of the studio Storytellers Forge came about in part from a lot of freelancer stories in the industry and even my own since 2018. So ultimately, that's how I got started. At this point, NaNoWriMo is no longer a contest for me. I just kind of passively am writing. We're going to kind of go through as to like the like the bare bones start of uh, like the writing process, which is like, how do you get inspiration ideas? Where do you keep them? Do you keep them? How like how do you manage that? There was a story plot line that I wrote for Chicago by Night that came from a dream of mine, and that whole thing is actually all the way through how it got broken up. Is is it's actually tied throughout the entirety of Chicago by Night, um, and it ended up becoming bigger than what my dream was. But that's where it started from. A lot of the stuff that I have come from dreams, come from poems, come from me seeing a piece of art. Um, uh, when you're at Game Hole Con, I saw this gorgeous like fantasy art of this um, gigantic robot in a forest covered in moss, and there's like this knight on a on a horse, and they're reaching up to kind of touch each other, like in the uh, chapel painting. Uh, David and God touching like the, the fingers. They're kind the of touching like the Da Vinci painting. Yes. Yeah, the, the Da Vinci the painting. The finger one, you know. Yes. <laughs> I can't think of the proper name of it right now. But like uh, that evokes Sistine Chapel. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So but that like that painting evoked so much imagery for me and so much emotion that I was like, I want to write an entire campaign around that. I still haven't yet, but I bought the piece. Um, and it's hanging up in my living room and it's a gorgeous piece. I absolutely love it. Um, but like, there's so much emotion in there. And so like that inspired me to do something or, you know, even just to buy the piece. Um, and then I have like a Trello board of like all of these ideas on, on what to do. So, <laughs> uh, like how do how do each of you manage those type of things or like get inspiration and draw inspiration from? So so it's uh it's a fun one on on my end because you have this annoying god that we cannot defeat called time and as much as i would like to write everything down so i get inspired from my real life um like i said one of the major scenes of my novel uh, was I was demolishing the uh, CTA closets in the deep tunnels of Chicago. So I'm way down beneath the city and we have this whole like deep tunnel project and I'm opening up like telephone closets. I'm just one after another. And it's like, you know, 11 o'clock in the day, but it's completely pitch black down here. And I shine my flashlight uh, and I open up a door and I just feel this wave of water wash over me. And I'm like, fuck, shine my flashlight down. And it's not, 
a wave of water. It's a swarm of cockroaches that are oh. now crawling all over me and up and inside and like like just scuttling all over me. I'm screaming like crazy, run up the freaking ladder. You know, I have to drive home naked. I get home, I sit in front of my computer, and there's a scene of my novel where one of the characters gets surrounded by a demon made out of insects, and that's my therapy. And um so a lot of urban exploration and random stuff that I find, I will be, you know, in O'Hare Airport or, you know, when I travel overseas, anywhere I go, I get to pay attention to the back of house. And so I pay attention a lot to like, you know, the way lighting looks, who's really working back there, how do people get access to things, how it reinforces. And since I love fantasy, I naturally just kind of like, ooh, wait, I could have this whole crazy action scene, you know, down here, or this creepy horror demonic scene with the drip of acidic water from, you know, these pipes. The problem is, I will also have other ideas when I'm working with other creatives, and there's this weird you know, freaking feedback loop where we all have these really good ideas and then we get really excited about a thing and I'm like, awesome, I am going to pitch for make this game line and we could write a campaign about this and we could write a campaign about this and I've done ghost writing for other people. I've written other people's novels for them. I had to stop all of it because there, it is better for me to finish a project than it is to have all of these other little ones that I'm going on. So I, I, I let a lot of them go now and I just like, okay, this, you know, I was like, Oh, I, now that I know how to pitch for studio IPs and it's like, Ooh, I could make a really badass game about this line or I want to write a novel about that. Like getting a chance to even do, I got approved to write some Subnautica fiction and I, cause I had an idea just by playing the game and I just blindly reached out, but I, I couldn't do it. Like I had other uh, time commitments. Um, the other way I get music and ideas is, or the other ideas is music. I listen to a crap ton of music and I build soundtracks for all of my characters. I will sit there and just like a writing session sometimes for me on a Sunday might just be me going through YouTube and watching music videos and like working on an outline and just building out a Spotify playlist. Uh, to me, music is intertwined. I can't write without listening to music. It's I'm, I'm very much the same way. I have to have something. Um, but be, being a musician, I have to be very specific about what I'm listening to because otherwise my brain will sit there and analyze it. Well, so what's so... funny is I, 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 I'm a metalhead and I listen to a lot of language music in other languages that I can't understand. I'll listen to like metal pop, like weird J-pop, French pop, all these other languages specifically because when I'm writing, there's no, I don't, I don't care about the lyrics of the song. I don't hear them. All I hear is just like the emotions or the beats. And that helps me set up a tempo without having anything bleed over. David, what about you? Most most of my ideas, I would say, jump around like a bit like Rick. There, it's like you've got this time to do. We've got this set period of time that we need to. We exist upon this planet, and you can't do everything at once. And I, I started off very much the same way. It's kind of like 
oh, I've got this really cool idea. I want to do this. Let's start this. Let's start that. Let's start. I've got about 10 unfinished projects at the moment. I take all of the, all of the ideas come from just existing, walking around things that I like, nature, countries, cultures, and then just throwing them down onto a piece of paper. The problem with that is I get all excited and then the new shiny comes along. And then I see, I go for a walk through the woods and, uh, I, I I see these random painted eyes on a tree, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, that's a great idea for this game." And let's let let's see if we can do some weird camping thing with with haunted trees, or I'll walk through a city at night, and I'll just see this flicker of a cat run through a dark alley, and I go, "Ah, there's an idea there," and I'll jump from idea to idea. Um, but yeah it's it's i find especially for the the kind of style that i write i am very much more of the the i suppose the folk horror the gothic horror style at the moment um any 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 form of dark horror not not your slashes i'm not really into blood and guts but they come from my own interests so the whole idea of eye to the void was just like divination is really cool but it's also not what you think it is um and RPGs tend to do it very, very wrongly, and they tend to maybe take ideas they shouldn't take in. Uh, shall we write something on this? Shall we make it more, more kind of influenced by the real world and not directly stolen from the real world? And then I actually had someone say, yes, yes, let's do this. And that's when I settle on an idea. It's when I've got someone who, who is willing to, to work with me on it and actually get it through to the end um otherwise i just start an idea and then it never finishes it took me god knows how long to write paradigm shift i think that took four years to write and it's only a six thousand word scenario because no i I couldn't really settle on it couldn't get it finished so yeah i jump around like music as well music's a big one um i take ideas from everywhere and anywhere that's that's pretty much it i've I've not got as grander a grander history or story telling etiquette as as you two i'm the newbie here so I'm probably going to be the quiet one. No, you're doing great though, because I could picture everything that you talk about and like relay it back to myself. Even the walk in the woods of here's this new idea. And let me ask you a question, David. Yeah. All of your ideas, and this probably applies to Crystal. All of your ideas that you have, you like me both recognize that we have this limit of time. Even if you just start this idea and you put it there, do you find that like in the back of my brain, the fact that I had these ideas means that if I do find a project that something is going to be going to completion on, that I'm going to be putting that time and effort Mm -hmm. in, all of a sudden I got this wellspring of like, oh yeah, I remember this one thing that I have, boom, pull it down from like the memory banks and like find that it's perfect. Yep. Yep. So very much so. If, if, even if it's just like a, a, so I do this as well within my science writing. Um, if if I have an idea for a project, I will just I will create a document, and I'll just put a title or a sentence on that document, so it's already there, it's already started. So it's kind of like starting the project, but not really starting the project. But then there's there's something there that exists. So, so that even when you that, just see the title of it, you remember. Yeah. I got this thing. Yeah. So if yep. you're like, oh, I had this idea about something like this similar from a couple of months ago or a couple of years ago. Is it there? And go into my Google Docs and go, oh, look. Yes, I did. I was right. Or no, it's not. It is now. I I have done. I have that too. I have the Google Doc of 
uh, here's a bunch of uh, folders and files with some stuff stay saved in them for things that I would eventually like to do in the future. Yep. I have the same. I'm actually currently working on a um, community content project um, from someone who dared me to write something uh, based off of the pun because there's story hooks, right? Uh, but what about bloody hooks? And so I mm. took that and run with, ran with it. And uh, I am that that's my side project for when I'm not writing all of my other projects. <laughs> uh, but that's something I'm currently working on too. And that was something that like I had to get out of my brain. It was so dug in there that I was mm. like, no, this, this actually has to happen because I can see it. I can envision it. I can see the mechanics in my head and it's not going to leave until it's on the page. Once it's on the page and I have it finished, I know that it's done. But until that point, it's going to be stuck there and it's going to permeate everything until I get it out. Yeah, there's something that I've started that keeps coming back into my mind. It's very, very subtle, but it, but it always creeps back in every now and then when I'm halfway through something else. This, this one project keeps creeping into my mind. But it's one of those projects that when I sit down and write it, it's it's much like what just happened with my last one is it's going to go from this small idea and it's going to, it's going to snowball. And I know it is because of what it's going to be. So that I, I then stop myself from sitting down and doing it because I've got other things that I need to do at the moment. And it's, but it's a project that I really, really want to do. And I just like, uh... <laughs> yeah, I think that's where the experience of having completed a few projects really helps because I know that like at this point, once you've done a few of them, you know that, hey, here's this fun idea of something that you would like to do. And if you can't envision how it ends or what it finally looks like at the end, that's when I, I will usually shelve it. Like, because, I mean, I have this idea for an entire game called Echo Punk that we're going to do and start writing on sometime next year. And I already know exactly what Echo Punk looks like all the way through. And thus, okay, this is an idea. I could take this and run with it. Um I have, I have a couple of those and, um, often I use, I, and I kind of have a, a cheat. I get to use pip primer as kind of proving grounds for ideas. So like with the pip primer, we have a theme and sometimes themes will get stuck in my head. The one that I'm working on right now, and I'm actually doing almost all, the entire design for it because I'm redesigning the entire mechanics for it, which is something that is hefty to do when you are not a writer familiar with mechanics and we're going to get into that but i'm doing essentially um it, it's honobono which is like soft role play or gentle role playing uh think like stardew valley valley animal crossing that type of thing even like cult of the lamb if you're <laughs> like that's that's kind of what inspired it because i love cult of the lamb if you haven't played it it's it's like animal crossing with ritual sacrifice it's great oh i know i'm waiting for somebody to buy it for me for christmas I, everybody knows that that's a game that I would love, but I'm like, I'm not going to buy that one myself. So, so yes, uh, when, when you play it, you gotta let me know. But so it kind of inspired like a challenge for me because I have played around with so many mechanics with pip system, adding stuff to it. What can I take away now, but still make it feel like pip. And so that's why, like, that's a huge project that I'm undertaking. It's going to be a small primer still, but the, the design mechanics of it are what's taking up the most time because I have to pare stuff down to its base 
to make it still feel like Pip. And so I haven't put that on other writers because I'm like, that's a that's a hefty thing to do. Great, so. <laughs> great, great segue to your next topic, actually. I know, right? Right? Like you um, set that up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't. You guys led me there. But yes. So yes. Yeah, so, so let's go on to the next topic because I brought it up, um, which is mechanics writing versus like the fluff writing. And by fluff writing, I mean like the plot, the story, uh, stuff that is not the crunchy bits that you have to roll or use some sort of mechanic on. And then I threw a novel writing there because I have Rick on and I feel like it is a good way to kind of discuss because a lot of a lot more people in the world are familiar with novels over the parts of role-playing games. There are a lot more people in the world that read novels than role-playing games. And so using that as a comparison for those two parts, I feel like would be uh, beneficial for everybody, including all of the writers that are listening to this. So. In terms of like, in terms of like verses um, between them, uh, you actually just said there's a lot more people that read novels than game uh, game books, and that's actually largely because of you know, like Newdim and, and and time and whatnot. Yeah. But also game books mechanically, there are entire companies out there that make a point of writing almost no flavor or fluff and are just dry reads and. Yep. They're just very boring. You pick up a book, you look at it, you look at some pretty artwork, and maybe you have some stuff to reference, and then you go about your day, right? Um, because I'm a novel writer, I tend to write my game books with the story and and the and, and the flavor. And actually, I'm going to talk about the crow in this one, um, and the reason why is because it hits all three points. The first thing is is when a game studio has a freelance contract and they have an IP and the you know Pressman Films might want you to just write, give us the 1994 original movie where you're playing Eric Draven and you're going to go around, you're going to kill some revenge and you're going to go, that's the end of the one-shot RPG and you, and you hit it. Give me a 35,000 word you know campaign that this takes part in. And so the novel writer in me instantly goes, no. Right. It's already been done before. Uh, and that's where I think the from everybody I've worked with in the scene, from freelance and even talking to the authors, it's always somebody who's a novel writer that says, let's do something unique. It, I've never gotten that from anybody who's like, like if I hire a freelancer for a project to work on something, you know, usually they're being given direction. They're being told, hey, we have this thing. We want you to do this. Um, and as a freelancer, they don't really think of themselves as developers or content creators. And so they kind of just fall into what they're told. And this can lead to a book that is put together by 10 freelancers, very, very bland, as each of them just did what they were told with no connecting uh, vision. So with The Crow, the first thing I said was, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to write an original story that ties all of the comics, the universes, everything together together. Um, because the comics are amazing and there's so many more uh, books out there than what people are familiar with with the franchise and the novels are also really good and there's a way that we could do this create a compelling plot line and let the characters still have diversity in every element and that goes into fluff territory so i've come up with an original story of this like arch villain who set this up that actually ties the all other stuff together now, fluff writing is how to make that pop, right? If you don't have fluff writing, um, your game line goes nowhere. Hey, I'm writing a D&D &D campaign. It's about clerics. 
I actually am. I'm actually working on the Black Ballad. It's my 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 favorite thing. But that line just doesn't do anything. I'm writing the Black Ballad, the perfect adventure to run after you TPK your party, um, where your party will determine the uh, whether or not resurrection should even be allowed to exist in your world. And like through this like epic quest and that storyline and that fluff and in the crow, um, the fluff hook was what if if you had all of these tales of the crow and people being reborn, what if they're always hyper violent, people die all of the time. What if the spirit of vengeance, the crow, killed somebody who was an innocent, but somebody with enough means, wealth, and access that their sister started doing research and found out that people were coming back from the dead and then is rich enough to start trying to arrange such situations to see if it can be repeated. And the players all play victims of tragedy that they then create themselves. And this, like a spider V ties them all together. And then there's some moral choices that have to be made. That's pure fluff. That's the hook of the adventure of what makes it fluff can get in a novel. Uh, that 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 entire hook, the whole novel could be fluff and world building and whatnot. But there's one person, maybe two people in a novel that are working on it. And it's you working very closely with your dev editor. And so you have total control. In a game book, um, fluff writing gets very, very difficult because you have multiple creators and multiple people. And so you almost need a stronger developmental editing team or a stronger person to help oversee that fluff is lore consistent all the way throughout. We know some famous games in the 90s, and I love my vampire to death, but I mean the Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand isn't talked about for a reason because it broke so many of the... Uh, the the elements, right? When you don't have that narrative check, your fluff writing is actually the most dangerous part of a game. Because mechanics, most storytellers rip and throw the mechanics out of the game anyway to play for table tension. You know, uh, storytellers don't, people running the game look at mechanics on the storyteller side and they will gladly be like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to change it. You know, Riffs had terrible mechanical math. I mean, in like some of their giant robots, uh, you know, your cockpit, cockpit space was only like two feet. And it was like, who the hell are you having drive these mechs? Um, but you know to like, take that away and toss it so in the crow we had you know so we had fluff writing and what evil geniuses did is they allowed me to just be in charge of the fluff but i still had to do mechanics now i didn't design the mechanic system for modern d20 uh chris ramsley did he's the other author on the uh the crow book he created all the player classes you know the different spirit types you know all the you know opening parts of crunch that players will use and storytellers will do and you know how the classes work and function so that's where i had to go right in a game system that i am not familiar the game system's not even out yet it comes out in january at the same time with the crow i had to research like all of the beta notes figure out what's going on figure out how to you know build these characters from scratch and it is a very slow process to go down that level to like study somebody else's work and you do have to dedicate that time to it and know that as you're a tabletop freelance writer when you get asked to write mechanics i am as a writing director going to expect you 
to do the research and read the prior elements and the bodies of work to know about the game system you're working in. And I understand that I might have uh, a mechanics editor or another design team or consultants that are going to help polish up and tweak the you know experience accounts or make sure that your numbers are in line and we'll play test for math and things but as a writer you have to still give us good mechanics that we can then expound off of and they should be flavorful you don't want to just give me stat blocks of rats that are just you know rats with a you know d4 hit points and they have a bite attack is like boring rats that you know have like a d4 hit points and well their attack is listed as chew your face off is way more fun you can have uh mechanics writing is really where your like thesaurus uh and like your google like search history does like how can you make this one word because you have like one or two words to either be humorous funny epic and so mechanics writing is really just about that pure punch of rat with chainsaw, you know, like you, yep. you do something to make it stand out because you don't have the word space. Um, and so the, the dangers of the dangers of them is novel writing. Uh, it is a significant amount of work for one person, right? You know, it's 150,000 words. You're cranking through it. It's all in your head. And then it's all going to get shredded. We'll talk about editing later. Fluff writing, you get to work with other people. You get to have that, like, you know, fun where we bounce around. But you just got to make sure you're consistently and cool. And then mechanics writing, pray to R&D Jesus that your playtest group is very, very strong. Uh, and because when you publish or write mechanics writing and players specifically players storytellers you're okay monster stat blocks we we give the pass on and whatnot but if you publish bad player content um that's it the entire book could be a brilliant book but if the classes in the first like 10 pages of the book are broken or you know just not formatted right or you missed a colon in a spot oh man you know that's it your entire studio is trash you know let's go to the internet and uh complain so that's that's my take on all three and like i do love it because i with uh prayers of the past i actually got to rely on all three i brought in some novel writing elements into uh the crow where i actually got to put in um like quotes some world building some actual like here's a chapter like just like a, a prelude chapter written not for the players just for the storyteller and that also they really loved it when i turned it in because it meant that even people at the production house and the film studio who aren't gamers loved it they were able to read it and be like oh crap this is a really badass world so there's reasons to use all three at times i think one of the best pieces of advice that i got between with the difference between novel writing and fluff writing is that fluff writing, when you're writing fluff for, for RPGs, every single sentence should be able to serve as a story hook in some way for your characters to be able to take it and run with it. I, and I feel like when you when you approach writing that way, not only is are you using active voice then, because it gets rid of that whole past tense problem, you 
are able to condense the action down into stuff that is still visually in your head appealing when you read it and interesting but it also serves the story and and kind of makes it easier for both the storyteller and the players to be able to interact with that then um when you when you get to the novel writing aspect and, and i'm not even sure if it's just can, like the right terminology but there's a lot of filler conversation and stuff that happens that doesn't happen in the fluff writing for RPGs. Well, yeah, because we get to have character development by having two characters argue with each other. In the yeah. Scene, we're painting a picture that you typically don't get to do because it's actually role-played and acted out in an RPG. Uh, my favorite fluff writing that ties exactly to what you just said, Crystal, is in, and I know I do this, but I wish more RPGs did it, when you have, like, item stat blocks, or, like, monster stat blocks, yep. those little, like, italic quotes... Yep. about them and like things like that that could like serve to be like wait a minute that's a fun easter egg or a cool idea yep i i loved the the quotes that were used in like the revised vtm because when you look them up a lot of times they were either music or like the the person that they were quoting served to serve some sort of background information within what was happening in that chapter and it was really kind of cool to to find, figure out that Easter egg. With the fluff thing, one of the things that I try to do, and I know and some games have done this quite well, Solemn Vale has done it quite well, is when, when they write their stories, they leave, purposely leave bits out. Yep. Um, so one of the wonderful things about exploring the village of Solemn Vale in that wonderfully weird 1970s British folk horror um, is the point where the scenario is not written and you are just said, well, the next thing's going to happen in about six hours time. You've got a village, go explore, go meet the people. And there's nothing, all you've got is this kind of world that exists and you've got a, a vague idea of what it's going to be like, but then the, the, the fluff is not fully fleshed out. So the players can then go and create the world to some extent themselves. You'll have um, NPCs written, and there'll be kind of a, a map of the village and you'll have a vibe of what it is. But allowing the players to have that ability to craft the world themselves, I, I find is quite a, a unique ability within RPG writing. There's some people, um, and I see this within some of the community content in D&D, where they just go full on and tell you everything and give you the entire world and give you every aspect and this door looks like this and this window looks like this and they've got these flowers outside their front door it's like do i really need all that information um but going back to something that yes, is no. <laughs> yeah exactly um you've got a limited word count don't fill it up with um they they've got pansies on their windowsills they don't you don't need to know that yeah, that's the Chekhov guns in uh, novels. If those pansies yeah. on their windowsills need to be mentioned, there better be a plot reason yep. for why those are there. But yeah, I th uh, going back to something that you said earlier about when you were talking about the crow and going, we're not just going to write that the movie from 1994. We're not going to do that. We're going to build on the world and, and use the full world and the comics and stuff. One of the things I tried to do when I wrote for Wrath and Glory uh, was... I didn't want it to be a typical Warhammer 40k Marines, Inquisitors, fighting chaos story, because that's what it always is. You look at most of the stories out there, it's, it's Imperial guys versus the bad guys. It, it, it's Space Marines versus chaos. And it's, it's overdone. 
140k the universe is absolutely massive there's so many worlds so many people there's so many different things you can do so i went into that going how can i make this fit within the world but not be what people would expect and i went oh there's a farming world there um can i can i can i set something on the farming world and they went yes and so then i built up this whole idea of a small farming community um being haunted by these ethereal spirits and um managed to get the dark elder written into um wrath and glory earlier than they were intending to because of the way i'd written it um but the way the whole thing plays out it's a political story so it's not a, oh i need to go find this cult and murder this cult or oh there's a there's a space marine running around and killing everybody there's a lot of politics going on behind the scenes and then they eventually find out that there is actually um, an incursion by Dark Elder and stuff. Spoiler alert if you've not played it. <laughs> um, but it was kind of, I didn't want to write something that everybody else had written. I wanted to do something that explored the vast world that existed there. And I find that if you go into D&D and stuff, a lot of people fall into the Lords of Water deep trap. Or they fall yes. into, um, what's the, the big horror castle one? I want to say Castle Ravenloft. Or they fall into Ravenloft and they just fall into these tropes. And I get bored with it. I don't want to do that. I want I want to go off and like DDs are meant to be a world free system. Meant to be. <laughs> I mean, I, I trust me, I, I agree full yeah. uh, very much. Uh, all of my major projects uh that are in DD are are playing with the same thing. And I part of the reason is is politics and world building and motivation yeah. come from us who like stories and uh novels. As a novel writer, it's almost impossible for me to create a scenario that doesn't have the same kind of elements, right? I would eat up that kind of there, uh, Legend of the Five Rings was one of my favorite games. Um, oh, it's a fantastic Because game. of mm-hmm. the nuance that you could have mm-hmm. with just each clan having a purpose and a motivation. And it creates an infinite wellspring of stories. But when yeah. you list out the worlds like a dry manuscript in a setting book, um, even if the writing itself is technically sound, and is you know fun there's not a lot to take and build upon as a storyteller or a player to envision yourself there walking among the streets uh to you know be a part of it so good fluff writing has a purpose and but i think that when you when you do exactly what you did uh uh david that's 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 totally bringing in that novel writing side of yeah Kick out uh, I, these I, templates. We're doing this. I will I'll wholly put my hand on my heart here and say I'm very much more about the world building and creating evocative scenes over more of maybe the actual storyline. Um, that tends to get lost at points. And I think I've written mechanics at points. I'm not sure. I don't remember <laughs> it. Uh, if you I wrote have. mechanics for me. Have I? Did I? Yeah. Yeah, oh, you wrote a whole scenario. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe I did then. That was <laughs> it's it's not something that I've ever really delved into, so I don't really know too much about it. But yeah, I yes, I did for time jumpers, didn't I? So I, I I will like definitely say like after switching to be writing director, one thing I learned is how many freelance table or freelance TTRPG writers when it comes time to write mechanics their like eyes turn into like giant saucers Mm. and they get like absolutely petrified 
I would love to try it. I would love uh, to try it's... it. And I had um, Brian Anderson, uh, you know, multi, you know, very, very famous author of the Dragon Barrel series, right? He's, you know, does all, like, super prolific author. He's like, Rick, I want to get into tabletop game RPG writing. Can you show me how to do this stuff? Mechanics can't be that hard. <laughs> I was like, it requires about, you know, deep knowledge of the actual game system um, and years of play. But sure, I'll, hey, I'll show you. Try to fill out this template. Brian comes back. Yeah, I'm going to stick back to doing novels. If you need anything in the future that's just some, <laughs> like, uh, storyline stuff, give me a ring. <laughs> I, I see, and that's like I I love mechanics, as as Rick knows. Uh, I love designing mechanics, and then I love taking those mechanics and making them evocative within the storyline. For instance, like the stuff that I did for the Red Opera. Like people are talking about stuff that they do with the the uh, collectors that I have that I created. Um, I absolutely love seeing what they do with them. It's and that that comes from the fact that like I actually started, with the exception of First Fable, I started with mechanics writing. That was that's all Pip System Core Book is is the mechanics, the crunchy bits. It is meant for you to be able to put whatever setting you want over it, um, and I have done that a lot with it. I've created uh, scenarios based off of movies and television series. I've I've done a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, with the mechanics and played around with it. Um, I mean, Crystal, it's fair to say that you have like a reputation for being able to design (laughs) mechanics and systems uh, to the point where I literally come to you and I say, hey, I got this thing. Um, And I could totally say, you know, Purgatory Poker, the Black Ballad, because we're not under an NDA. Like, design me this system. Just go. And... You know, the thing is, is like right here for people listening to this podcast, we have three very different like people who are all in the industry um, who, you know, David, if it was like, okay, cool, design these epic scenes and scenarios and and whatnot. He's the writer I would go to for that part. Crystal, boom, I actually do go to Crystal of like, I got this like, make this impactful game system, you know, so you can find your niche in each of them and like you can cross around between all three but you do find the stuff that you like yeah having just said that actually i've I've just realized i have written some um mechanics um they're not out yet but it was some character npc designs for um something that is going to come out hopefully next year fingers crossed for vesson and um oh nice yeah it was so much fun because i went how can I bring in these ideas and then how do they work? And it was, it was a very, very different thought process because I wrote the fluff for them and went, now how do these turn into mechanics? So it is actually fun. It it, it was quite a fun thing. You get to that. It is. I think when you get to describe cool, special abilities and character attacks and stuff like that, um, I don't know. I, it's, it's got a charm to it. Yeah. I think Vessel was a good one for it as well, because, it's very lo- rules light. There's not very, there's no specific kind of, these are the rules and stuff. So you actually, it is based upon the, the imagery of the, the mechanics. So um, I yep. find that quite useful. I like, I like taking the rules and, and how I approach it is what can I write that breaks a rule? I knew you were going <laughs> to <do that. laughs> 
<laughs> I, and that's how I, I write a lot of mechanics or design a lot of mechanics. It's how can I break a rule and how far do I want to break it? Do I want to just crack it just a little bit or do I want to blow the whole thing open? And I've written for both of them where I was like, I have no idea if this is balanced or not. I'm going to throw this out there for play testing and see if it's going to be balanced. If it's not awesome, I understand. Uh, but if it is, I'm, I'm taking it and I'm running with it because when you can figure out that balance, um, mechanics is a lot of fun to play with. All right. Um, uh, we're going to move on to the next part, which is outlining. Um, and this is a one that I like, I had to learn how to do as a developer, uh, because when you bring on writers and you don't have an outline, nobody knows what they're doing. Um, and so like, I've had to stumble through this because I wasn't good at it before when I was just doing the freelancing. Um, I would just kind of write out everything and I have a, a process, which is I usually write down just the sections and then I go through and write each section and that's, that's not outlining technically. So I want to talk about outlining, how useful is it? What is it? And what does it actually look like in application? Because it can look different for different people. And obviously everyone's going to have their own way to outline. But like, what's the bare basics that you need? As someone who hasn't worked on any kind of like major projects with multiple writers, um, I've not really dealt in depth with um, outlining other than maybe the stuff that I've done with you, Crystal, for Pip where you've kind of gone yeah you're writing the scenario or you're writing this bit and that's that's as much as you kind of really gave us you gave us like the, the title of the book and kind of the theme of the book but then you kind of went well go write some mechanics for this go write the scenario for this and left it at yep. that so my approach to outlining is i like to give the idea behind it and then allow writers to fill in everything i don't like to yeah. spoon feed um i i feel like if I do that, I will just get exactly what I would have written. And that's yeah. not what I want. I want, I want writers to be challenged and come up with cool stuff uh, yeah. that I may not have thought of. Uh, um, with, the, with the Soulbound thing that I did as well, all they told us was write something within this realm or this city within the realm. And that was, again, that was as much as an outline as we got. And then said, go, go write the scenario for this. Um, the Kickstarter that I just did, I kind of roughly out for because um, I had to pitch it to the company. I roughly outlined it again just by putting up, well, it's going to be this number of chapters. Each chapter is going to be based upon a different form of divination. And then there'll be a little bit at the bottom of it, which will describe how to use them in the game. That was my outline. There was nothing written. It was just chapter headings and the breakdown of the chapters. So that's about as much as my experience with outlining goes. Um, if I'm writing something for for community content, I I tend to do what I know I call a first splurge, where I just write. I don't outline anything. I just put words on a page, and it suddenly goes from like two two words to ten thousand words very very quickly, and makes no sense whatsoever. And so I should probably learn to outline better because then I come back and read it and edit and go, what the hell have I written? That, that, that's, this section that's of the podcast could be called the uh, Rick's writer horror moment as I look in shock <laughs> at the answers that both of you have given. Um, uh, oh, wait, so, wait, wait. I finally figured out something that's horrific for you. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so, okay. Uh, uh, 
out, outlines uh, are massive for me. Um, so when you write your first novel, um, you should even still have an outline. When you're on your third novel, that outline looks like it does for mine, which is a entire Excel spreadsheet with every single chapter and what's going to happen in that chapter, how many word counts that chapter is, the starting quote for that chapter, which characters and scenes are involved in that chapter, which other chapters from other books that references. Um, and it will take me about a month and a half to two months to make that outline. When that outline is done, I've written the book. I don't sit down to write the book at this point. I just go reference my outline and I just fill in the flowery words. Um, outlines for me are the actual creation process and it doesn't matter what I'm writing. Um, when I have a project where I have 23 writers and I have to put together an outline for them, the book is, when I do the outline, Every plot beat, everything, like, I know what's going to be there. I'll give the writers wiggle room, and I'll say, this is what's going to happen um, in your chapter. Uh, you have to bring an encounter or a scenario or something to bring this part to life. But all of the elements surrounding that contained thing are outlined. And I mean down to almost a T. Here's your major characters. Here's what they look like. Here's their, you know... Uh, their, their Bible parts, here's the plot beats, this is where this section of the book is going to have this. So I could look at a spreadsheet, and I know exactly what stage everything is at, and I could have a meeting with each individual person. And I could have, if I had a 20-chapter book with my outlines, I could have 20 writers all work on 20 chapters at the same time, and at the end of it, it would still be a coherent book that just needed a final stitch thread. Um, I really do big outlines and a great method for people just getting started in outlines is called the snowball method. You write down your book in 15 uh, words of what the, the synopsis of it is. You take those 15 words and you describe it out into five sentences, right? As a overall thing, which also serves as a great pitch or a tagline for the back of the book uh, later on. Um, and then you take those five sentences and you turn each of those five sentences into your further outline points. And then you go into each of those and fill them out. Then you can make a spreadsheet on the side and have a character. And I know this seems like a lot of work, but when you are really starting to do this for a career and you're starting to go to like those next stages, um, you, once you realize that you're not outlining your book so that you can write your book, you're actually writing your book in an outline format so you can then actually produce the book. And you need all of those components in there. You can come up with treatments, pitch lines, docs, character descriptions, commission artwork. Um, your outline can serve as a fundamental breach of every aspect of TTRPG and novel game creation. You know, no artist wants to necessarily read an entire chapter, but if I have my outlines actually written up and done, I can commission art orders at the same time that my writers are going through chapters just by my outline descriptive briefs. And so, yes, two outlines. And there is a, a, there is a lot of reasons. Your marketing copy, oh, there's so much can be built off of your outlines. But you, at, once your outline's done, your book is done. You just need to put in the, like, the time to type in the pretty words. But that creative part, like, eh, it's already done.
See, and, and that's actually kind of why I wanted to bring you on, um, not specifically for the outlines, but for like your whole perspective, because you do come from novel writing primarily. Um, and so like, I have seen your outlines and I was like, how in the world do you function? I love spreadsheets, but oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and so uh, hearing reason why, where you come from, how you do it. Um, I feel like, um, because like I said, both David and I have had instances where we don't have an outline or like I have an outline and I have basic outlines, but uh, like I give a, a lot more freedom, but that's because of the perspective and the scale too. I don't have a huge scale like you do. Yeah. Like just seeing and, and experiencing different types of novel out, or not out, novel, RPG outlining, I feel um, is also useful because mm. if you come from somebody who has an extensive outline and then you go to like, oh, just write us whatever in the city, um, that is very jarring. Yeah. <laughs> and, I imagine like having those wonderful spreadsheets that you've just mentioned. And I'm, I'm, I love a good spreadsheet. But that that sound terrifies me the way you've just described it. But I imagine for like one of these large, full on scenario books that you'd get, so Ravenloft and stuff like that. I imagine having that kind of plan would be incredibly useful because it can be done quickly. Once you obviously once you pass it out to the writers, it's done very very quickly, and uh, you, the story's all coherent and things. Whereas if you want, if you didn't have that and you just said your chapters on this, go write it you'd have 20 writers writing 20 different things that you'd then have to come back to and go, well, uh, that's a story, possibly. So there's another industry that this is actually super relevant in, and, and a fun uh, side story is me and Melinda Snodgrass, who uh, wrote Star Trek Next Generation um, and is a screenwriter for many like Hollywood things, right? Um, and we were on a panel together and both of us were talking about writing process um, at different ends of the panel. Melinda and I are, do not come from the same generation, right? She could be my grandmother and, but she's still a very prolific and amazing writer. But when we were talking about our writing processes from two completely different industries, professional, professional screenwriter, game dude who writes sarcastic apocalyptic stuff, our methods. And there were some indie authors like in the middle both Melinda and I had the exact same writing process. And even after that panel, we realized we're like, Hey, she was like, you we're just, we're siblings just from a different generation. We will even go do our outline and then purposely go for a walk or a run or go work out. Because after you write a segment of your outline, you get to go have that shower, that away time from the computer and ideas can percolate about what uh, comes next while it's in your brain. But that she talked about it on a screenwriter's side. When you have writing rooms for just filled with people, um, the project director or the writing director or the person responsible for those outlines, you know, you can collaborate. If you can have five writers, 20 writers in a room all building the outline together. It doesn't have to be a solo project. And, but you're, you're building your Bible so that you all know what you're going to be working on together. It's, it's a bit of similar kind of within academic writing. Um, within sciences, I know at least, um, at least within the sciences that I work in, I've 
and I know within some of the other sciences as well, you have multiple authors on a paper. So you have your first author who is generally the one who's done most of the work, and then you have a list of co-authors. Um, and the way I, when I do the, when I, bleh, when I write on papers, I will write a section uh, or will it be planned out? Uh, papers generally follow a very, very similar pattern. You have your introduction, your methods, your results, your conclusions, and the discussion section. It's it's generally done like that, but it has to be a flowing story. So even though it's very academic and the, the language can be very, very dry, um, you're still trying to tell a story throughout this. So I'll, I'll write one section and go, right, okay, that's fine. That That makes sense. I will then take that break. I'll go off and go for a walk and I'll let the next ideas of the, of the, of the flow of the results and the story that we're trying to tell come to me. Um, and then I'll come back and write that and then it will go to the co-authors and they'll go, yes, this makes sense or this doesn't make sense. And we'll, we'll work together within the outline that the journals want us to write in because journals are the be all and end all of science apparently. <laughs> long 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 arguments we can have about that one but it's it's kind of that where i do follow an outline because we have to but um there are some some similarities that i can see between the, the styles there it's just the words are less fun and probably longer and more complicated i don't know i know some brilliant uh the, the scientists at the museum of science and industry they have a way of turning science into snark and i love them uh, but they're pa they're paid for outreach. <laughs> oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, I, when, I, when I do my outreach, I, I do get a bit um, British humor, I feel, on it. I will say from a perspective of, like, writing and stuff like that, like, working within outlines like Rick has, um, I did have a lot of creative freedom. I mm. had a ton more than what you might think you might have. Um, it's just a matter of being able to work within that goal and knowing what the end result is going to be. And from there, knowing what parameters you have, you have a bigger box than what you think. Um, and so having a very detailed outline is not necessarily not like detrimental um, to the creative process. Oh so. yeah. It, a, a great example of what that looks like is just, I will go to crystal and say, I, need i have this chapter three the characters are going to walk into this room at this point there's this big political thing that needs to happen go nuts and mm -hmm. like like at that point she gets to have fun within that box and she knows where the beginning and the end is at and that's the important part you're providing this next person this is where you're bringing it to a close so the next person can yep. can go forward Yep. As long as I know what the end point is and, and uh, then I can lead into where uh, the next writer that picks up that, that next portion where it's not going to be a jarring voice change, um, which is hard to develop through. <laughs> um, that's, that's editors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually we're, we're going to talk through that. Actually, let's go to the next point. Um, which is redlines slash developer notes and editing. Um, so uh, I know like Rick has a slightly different process than myself um, when it comes to being the developer or the project head. Um, so with, with the PIP system, I do a first draft and then I do what's called redlining or developer notes. 
And those are the notes that I give to the writers as to what I want them to do um, for direction wise. And then from there, they have a rewrite session where they can fix the stuff that I've asked them to. I do some minor editing. I am not an editor, um, but I, I read through everything. And if it's not working or if something can work better, I usually give them editing notes. I always do spelling and punctuation and stuff like that. Cause no question on this one <laughs> then. Yeah. You've never given me red lines. I have. I didn't get, I any, I didn't get any on the last one. I didn't see anything. I sent it through to you and then it appeared in the book. David, that's because you, um, you, you have the golden touch at the keyboard. <laughs> I really don't right? I have much of dyslexia. probably really no. horrendous. <laughs> David, don't you remember? That was when you started doing your research project and you're like, I just don't have time. Oh, okay. That might be it. Okay. <laughs> and so I just did them for you. I was like, yeah, no, no problem. I got you. you <laughs> Oh yeah, you were yeah you were moving. I think that it was it was something that was happening in your actual oh, yes, life. Yes, where yes. oh no yes I remember yes you did <laughs> offer and I went yeah I'm not going to have time to do this okay. Yep, and so, so I just I just did them for you. So much, much appreciated. <laughs> so so what's uh what where's where's our process differ here because that's exactly where I I have. Uh, um, so I I think it's more of like like what we call it than anything else. Because I, because after I get the second one done, then I send it off to an editor, um, or I do development and then I send it off to an editor. Um, I think it's more of. Like, oh my! What my we come call from, it? Yeah, my come from the literary terms. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So so uh, for me, it's writer does draft or I do a draft. I will send it off to the developmental editor, right? Um, you know, like. And that's a person whose job is to make your story be the best version of your story that they can yep. be. And they can hurt. Um, oh, yeah. de developmental editing is rough. It's actually, if it takes me three months to draft a novel, it could take me eight months to do dev edits. Um, it's developmental editing can be hard. Um, but then writer comes back and they revise it and they have their writing session just like that. And then they turn it back in some projects. I will have two rounds of dev editing. Um, sometimes for books, I'll have two rounds of, especially as you're getting later in a series where it becomes more complex. Uh, a second pass is always a good check, but it's lighter. It's nowhere near as yeah. intense. And then I'll go to a copy editor for specifically the arcane wizardry of the Chicago manual of style and, you know, various, uh, who wants to argue over commas and semicolons on my end as a writer, I will admit the dirty truth that when I get copy edit backs, I just right click, accept all. It takes me 10 minutes to do my copy <laughs> editing. Um, uh, I am not going to argue over I, uh, you know, where a word goes. I, I have the same editor for Pip that, that I've had for the entirety of that whole thing. I trust that editor. Um, I know that editor. We have had very many deep discussions about things. I also just accept all because I know that she knows what she's talking about. She knows Pip. She knows what I'm looking for. Even if she doesn't have the outline in hand or anything like that, she knows exactly what I look for in Pip. I just accept all. Um, and that's because I, I trust her. So <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of do the same. I, and I've, I've had it where she and I were in the same document and, she's going through editing stuff and I'm just accepting it as she's doing it. 
It's like, I've listen, done that too. you don't even you don't even need to track changes. Just go ahead and make them, okay? Yeah. Yep. All right. Just just save the time because I'm not gonna pay attention. Like I'll like do this thing. It did get me in trouble in my book though because the copy editor changed the name of a street that I like changed the address of a place, and my friend in Chicago recognized that street and was like, "That building's Wait, not there." What? What? Oh, uh, now I want to know. Uh, you can tell me uh, after if you want. Yes, uh, but <laughs> so there is a there 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 was one where that accept all did bite me, and um, but um, and then after that we'll do um, proof uh, proof stage, which is after layout you'll go through the PDF yep. and you'll do a we final edit uh, for proof um, or print proof or whatever the element be, and then print proof is when you physically get the book, yep. you're supposed to take another pass through it to make sure that everything else also checked. So um, really the painful one for most people is developmental editors. And um, even on, there hasn't been a single project that I've been on where developmental editors clashing with writers um, can always be rough, right? It is, it is always, uh, it, it, it's just hard, but Stephen King has the best advice for it. Uh, your editor is right 100% of the time. Uh, I may not listen, or you may not listen to your editor 100% of the time. I may not listen to my editor 100% of the time. Your editor's still right 100% of the time. And the truth is, though, uh, when you are a writer and a creator of content and you are going through dev editing, the only way to make sure you can stand your ground, even if you have to have an adversarial uh, approach is to understand and have pride in your work or know your core idea. And if an editor is suggesting that something gets cut or changed, even if they left a comment that you don't agree with, or you don't understand it, or you think that that's there, you have to remember they're reading it from their point of view and if yep. they think that something is weak and needs to get cut or doesn't make sense, it's because you didn't do a good enough job explaining and setting up why that is an important thing. Yep. And so you you're, you have to kind of read between the lines of your editor. And um, there are times, though, I have had to fire a dev editor off a project because their feedback just was not helpful and it was not constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – but you also have to know as a creator – here is what I'm trying to do. And not yep. everybody is a good fit for that editing stage. And, and like, so my approach to dev editing is that I always try to look at the overall voice and like how that's going to fit in the bigger picture. And so like when I approach getting dev edits back, I also try to be like, well, my voice isn't fitting what they're wanting. So it's not a, and and I will say like 90% of the time, it's not a, they're attacking me personally um, or my writing personally. Uh, it is, they are trying to get my voice to align with everything else in the bigger project and the bigger picture. And I only have that small little portion. And so I approach dev editing in that way too, because I don't expect my writers to know every single in and out of PIP. That's my job. They are focusing on their little part um, of that system and that's it. So they don't know that we possibly had that power written three, um, uh, three articles ago, uh, for PIP and 
it's the exact same wording and the exact same mechanics, just a different title. That's my job. So I need to let them know, hey, you need to adjust this. Uh, it's exactly the same as this other thing, just with a different title. Um, or, you know, this isn't working. I need you to rewrite this. Uh, so yeah, like it's, it's really hard not to take it personally. Um, usually when I get dev edits back and I know that they're rough, I will read through every single one of them and then give myself a day or two <laughs> to just kind of process through all of the feelings and go through the stages of grief <laughs> and imposter syndrome that always happens every single time. It doesn't matter how good my right, my, my red lines come back to me. I always have that. I don't belong here. And I know that. So I plan for it. And then I start working on my making my writing better and matching up with what it needs to be. Let's move on. Uh, because like that whole, the whole thing, a lot of it has to deal with just dealing with imposter syndrome. Um, to be honest, like red lines are tough. Um, if, and, um, as Rick said, I actually do appreciate when people stand their ground for things that they are actually really passionate about when it comes to that particular writing. If I don't see it, though, um, one, I want the author or the writer to let me know that that is something that they want to stay in there. and How can we yep. keep it in there? Um, because it's it's pushback, but it's pushback in a way that if the if the author is truly passionate about it, it does belong in there. So let's figure it out. Um, and uh, as a, just a piece of advice, if a developer is abusive to you in the comments and starts making commentary about other things that is not the writing specifically, um, that is when you need to have a conversation with uh, somebody else in the company for moderator or anything like that. Uh, don't take that abuse. Like, yep, exactly. Not, uh, yeah, like that's not your, cool. <laughs> yeah, let, let your writing director know. Um, like I, I swear, if I ever had, uh, you know, like anybody, any if you ever get told that somebody, if you're a, a ah, this is hard to say because this one's a bit of drama related. But when if anybody ever says your writing is weak in dev notes, that is not constructive criticism in nope. any capacity. And right away, that's like your writing director should be on that person. Mm -hmm um of like no um yeah. and everybody was brought onto the project for something but if you're a writer and you have that idea yeah let us know push back like you can reject an editorial change because yep. then it's a dialogue conversation hey yep. here's why i think this is cool and then we go okay how do we work that in um okay so moving on to our next portion um i want to talk a little bit about writer's block um, because I feel like a lot of people also suffer from this, especially like if you're brand new and you're like, I have writer's block. I have no idea where to start. Um, I have personally, I, I do experience this um, and I don't call it writer's block. I call it writer's avoidance because that is exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to avoid the writing. <laughs> um, and so um, and, and that's like, that's a personal thing for me. Like I have so many ideas and I know I do. So I know it's not an idea thing. It is definitely a, I'm trying to avoid the work. Um, so what is the most prevalent thing on my mind? And I need to c get that done. And then I can focus on the writing and it's usually cleaning. So you'll know when I have a uh, deadline because my apartment will be spotless. 
uh, <laughs> and everything will be organized. Um, and yeah, so like my my husband is like, oh, you have a you have a, a deadline coming up, don't you? I'm like, oh yeah, why? He's like, because you just reorganized your entire closet. Yeah, it tracks. <laughs> um, so I I've kind of reframed it in that way because that's how my brain works. Uh, but what about you? both of you how like writer's block is a thing but how do you approach it how do you uh, rectify it i'm super fast on this one because i don't have much to say because i don't have writer's block um i treat my writing like a job and i train myself to just sit on down every day and do something every single day for it and creatively early on in my career I picked up a very compelling trick that has prevented me from ever having writer's block. The start of my idea is the end of whatever I'm writing. And since I always know where the end is at, I'm always writing to that goal. I'm not sitting at a blank piece of paper of I'm going to write a novel. I don't know what this novel is about. I could tell you the ending of every single book I have in my entire seventh age series. Um, like down to a T and it has not changed for five years and they're, they're out there. They're like, I'm still working on them every, you know, week or so I, I push that boundary a little further. It's just time for me, but I don't have writer's block and it's never been a, a thing because it, um, every time I sit on down, every time I take on a project that I'm going to write, I want to work on it and I already know where it ends. And so the rest of it is just training your time of every day. I do something related with my writing life, period. Whether it be a building an outline, I don't track word counts per day or things like that. Just something gets done every day with that capacity. And it's just part of my routine. Oh, yeah. That's that's absolutely real. And I mean, I got my day job, too. You need that time. And so that's where... Um, we're on a podcast right now doing this thing and doing this recording. We're not writing, but this is still a writing thing. It's actually yes. helping with the other part of writing, which we don't ever do marketing. Um, yep. <laughs> I got, I got audiobooks. I've started doing audiobooks more often than, than because of the, the whole screen time thing. Yes. So, audiobooks have been fantastic. Cause I can get, I can get research in while I'm doing housework or oh. driving. Oh shit. I just realized one of the biggest ways I got over writing avoidance. I deleted legal legends off my computer. <laughs> I, I Diablo three for me. I, that was, that was yeah. my big one. I, I, nope. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I done. I'm done. I, I don't game on the computer at all anymore. I specifically save my role-playing games and my my gaming for an RPG that is a beginning, a middle, and an end after I complete a project as a personal reward. So we talked a little bit about pitches, and this is like where I've actually personally struggled because usually I have people coming to me going, I want you to write this, and which is awesome. I love that people think of me when, when they're coming up with a project and they're like, I want Crystal to write this part because I know she's going to be awesome at it. But then like people are like, oh, well, yeah, sure. Write up a pitch. And I'm like, what? Um, 
and so that's been, that had, had been a huge struggle for me and kind of still is, um, because I always like to be able to know like how to pitch and what parts I need to include in the pitch. So I want to talk about this because I know both of you have written pitches before for very different companies and very different reasons. Um, so like, how do you both approach this? This is kind of a self-serving one for me, <laughs> but I figure everyone else is going to benefit from this too, because, uh, you know, I'm always still learning. Um, even if I have written on a whole bunch of projects, I'm still learning stuff about this industry. So. Ah, so I've, uh, I, I do have a lot of pitch. I have three pitches in right now. Um, one of them is a full PowerPoint presentation treatment. We passed the North American branch. We actually have to get it translated to Japanese and get shipped overseas to like pay a broker to go hand that thing delivered and give a presentation out in Japan. Um, I have, that's actually one of the things I'll be doing uh, later December is, is literally working with uh, Joseph Asfahani to, um, translate this pitch for an RPG game because um, we're actually going to try to take a swing of the fences and go for a um, uh, major anime uh, title. Nice. But um, we passed the North American branch. We just have to go to the next stage now. Um, so, but my initial pitch was very much just a finding the right person to give the pitch to. And that did involve me going to do a lot of research, figure out who's the right person asking if it's okay for me to turn in a pitch because you don't want to send in a blind uh blind pitch and then we call them treatment documents and a treatment is a about a one-page synopsis a high level overview filled with punch this thing is not dry you want your treatment document to be badass go get a copy editor to and pay them to edit your treatment like, do ne never send a treatment off to anybody if you have not had a professional editor go through it. Um, otherwise, you will, especially if you're doing this for like, I want to do this thing. Pay the 200 bucks to have a copy editor go through your treatment. But get your treatment uh, done. Uh, if anybody needs help with writing a treatment, um, email me. Um, my contact information is on my website, which I'll talk about at the end of the podcast. I have sample treatments available. Um, I can walk people through the process. I learned a lot of this from writing for Geek and Sundry and Nerdist. Um, a good way to learn how to write pitches as well is to do blog writing or press writing because those taglines that you come up with, those you know, 15 words, those hooks, those elements that you're doing uh, are very strong ways to sell something in a quick – like if you have – tweet and a tagline writing blog posts or doing press writing of covering other people's work is a good way to train your ability to pitch and you can actually watch and gamify your pitch ability in real time by watching how many clicks you get on your articles based off the tagline and the cover image alone because you're really just selling people uh and you're trying to get like get people's attention with just this one tiny little element and so pitch writing is is very important for an author um uh, especially when you're promoting your own work because your primary sales is driven by revenue and getting people to read your work out there um crystal has heard my pitch in person um, mm -hmm. She knows I'm a very in strong in-person pitcher. Um, this is why I do a lot of conventions because I have just this 
I'm very That's passionate actually about how we, we first met. <laughs> yeah. I'm very, I'm very passionate about my novels and uh, I kind of like nerd out and I will like smile about them, but I will give a very like awesome pitch about my novels and I have to work on my internet pitching for it, but that's like, like you have to take your marketing time to go, go do that. But I have treatments for it and it did work. Like I, like that's how I got an audiobook. book. Uh, that's how I got, you know, uh, optioned, um, you know, uh, which will probably never go anywhere, but you know, just even getting an option is still nice. And you, you really, uh, with the crow, I blind pitched. I was not recruited to write the crow. Um, I saw that the studio had it. I reached out, I contacted them. I, uh, had some back and forth emails with them. They weren't familiar with my work. I gave a very awesome, like nice bio of here's what I've done. Here's some of the awards that I've written. Here's some of the works that I published. And I said, can I just please submit you a treatment? I have a killer idea for this. And they agreed to let me submit a treatment. And I wrote up an entire treatment for prayers of the past and I sent it to them and they loved it. And that's how it, that process uh, got started. And then, you know, that goes back into an earlier chapter because they sent back a contract. And I, even though I was pitching them, I still negotiated my contract. Um, and yeah, pitching is a skill set. Um, you can take classes on it. You can uh, work at it. You can hone it. Um, it is sort of the transition after you finished something and you're done with it and you're looking to go get more work, the learning how to do pitches, treatments, go develop chase bigger IPs. That is sort of a thing that kind of comes afterwards. You don't start off as a strong pitcher. It's a, it's a dedicated thing you have to work towards. Um, and I do want to preface this by saying that most companies do not want unsolicited pitches. That's why you have to um, ask first. Yes, ask first. Um, a lot of companies will only take pitches from writers who they have contracted with before. Um, so you do have to kind of go in with, into it with the awareness of just because you have a good idea does not necessarily mean that a company is going to either want to hear it or have the ability to hear it at that moment. Um and that is because there are a lot of wheels going on and a lot of things that are going on within a company that are not announced. And, and as, as good as we think our ideas are, a lot of times they're built off of things that other people have also noticed within writing, especially for things like uh, RPG lines where they leave a lot of stuff open for interpretation. They have a lot of interesting things that they don't expand upon. Um, and so there could be um, products that are coming down the line that have not been announced that are almost word for word your pitch. And then that puts the company in a very bad position of uh, in the future when it is released, are they going to be, be, be accused of stealing that pitch? Oh, yes. Okay? Yeah, you, can, you can never attach your manuscript, your idea, anything. Yep. I can't even open the email if there's a document attached and you want to pitch me your game or something like, like I can't even look at it. Yeah. Like. Yes. Uh, so it's like, do not do that. Do not be the writer to do that because um, that is a very quick way to, to <laughs> not be asked to work on any projects with that company because of the fear of, of the uh, legal 
repercussions behind of, well, they pitched this to us and we have this book coming out and it is almost exactly word for word the same pitch that we did because it's such a popular area or whatever the case may be. Um, so please, uh, as a writer, as a freelancer, be mindful of how you are pitching things. Um, always never do anything unsolicited, always ask first, um, uh, and, and start with the companies that you have worked with. If you have that ability, um, because those are, those companies are going to be the ones that are, they're going to know your work. And they're going to know how strong of a writer you are and uh, know where you are best fit within the company and the projects. So, um, okay. So, uh, any other things on pitches or anything else? No, pitching is also really good though, to get people to play in your own tabletop games for, for short on players. Uh, selling, learning how to sell your game of why they should play your campaign always handy that's legit all right so i always like to close with um some um advice they have or some of the biggest takeaway that they have from this discussion um or the biggest piece of advice that you have in this specific topic um so who would like to go around first um all right so uh (laughs) Uh, I mean, my big shock was still definitely the uh, outline thing, but also actually, Crystal, your uh, your your actual thing just now on pitches, where you just mentioned um, about how companies couldn't open up documents and there's legal ramifications and how to go about that in the industry with industry etiquette. Um, I actually forgot about that myself. I mean, it's I still go ask for how to do pitches, but like that's actually my takeaway of like I'm gonna remember. I was like, oh yeah got to do this this way um because i don't i don't commit that sin but at the same time i i do forget about it i have a lot of people right now sending me pitches yeah and i have to be very careful about that um and i have to formalize my own studio's submission process for pitches um now while we're getting started and so that is a huge takeaway for me because now i'm on the other side of that fence well now i know what you're doing after the podcast yes (laughs) all right david so my takeaway from this episode and kind of what i've um picked up i suppose what i've learned is the bit on um Pitching and pitching to companies, uh, as it's something that I've never really had to do. Um, I seem to have been in that lucky situation where things just seem to have worked out. But yeah, um, the idea of first asking if they're open for the pitch, making sure that they're they're willing to accept the pitch rather than just going, here's a pitch, here, you, uh, what do you think of my idea? Is it cool? Are you interested? So asking... Uh, are you open for pictures? Are you open and willing to, to hear my idea? And then they say, if they say yes, then obviously that's great. And you can go off and then send, uh, do an outline of your pitch, um, see if it's something that they can work with. And then if they do say no, then, or they don't respond, then, well, don't take that to heart, I suppose. Um, they're not going to obviously pick up on every pitch. Some pictures they may already, as we've, we've said, they may already be working on with other things. 
Um, and obviously then there's the legal ramifications that may come from that. Uh, don't be disheartened if, if, if you don't hear from them. Companies can get hundreds of thousands of pictures, I, I would guess. Um, well, not hundreds of thousands, that would be insane. Um, but they could get hundreds of pictures um, for their lines, and I'm, I'm sure that that does happen. And, well, there are lots of writers out there. There are lots of freelancers out there who are looking for work. So just keep trying on that one uh, but yeah i think i think uh learning learning how to pitch properly is it's kind of where I, what i've taken out of this yeah okay um and i think my biggest takeaway is uh the the steps for the outlining and like how to actually effectively use it um because that has been a struggle for me um personally because again i'm used to I've outlined how like I started out in the industry with, and that's what I knew and going into it now, I'm like, okay, so how can I adjust things to be a little bit more cohesive so that it's easier for writers to find voice and all of that stuff for bigger projects because uh, Pip Primer is a small project. So it's a very small scale. I can kind of get away with stuff, but when I get into larger projects, how can I take that, and expand it into something that is more manageable for me. Um, and I love spreadsheets. I adore spreadsheets. Um, I have, I use spreadsheets as an educator to track data and everything like that. And I have everything all fill everything all out and connect everything and link and all of that stuff. Um, so I know how to use them and now it's applying that knowledge to the actual writing process. So and the fact that it horrifies Rick that I don't do that. Um, so we are going to be wrapping up this podcast series, uh, this episode. Um, so um, first off, I am going to have everybody kind of give their socials where you can find them, projects where you can buy your stuff. Um, and then I will close out with the Darker Days radio stuff. So who wants to go first? In regards to where you can find me, uh, I am on social media. I have a Twitter uh, at the Drunken Store One, um, I occasionally appear on the Twitter. Um, I'm in the Darker Days Radio Discord, which will be linked in the show notes. I have my own podcast where I I tell gothic horror stories at the moment. I delve into folklore and history from around the world and and things, uh, and that's the Drunken Storytellers podcast. You can find that on all good uh, podcast places. It's a bit random. Sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes I talk crap. Uh, so go go check that out as well. Um, you can find my works over on Drive Through RPG. Look for David Whitworth or go through the Darker Days Radio and you'll see some of my stuff there that I've done with, with Crystal and things. And the Hive Mind... Oh, not Hive Mind Games. And the Eye to the Void, which is a guide to real world divination in tabletops and how to use it as inspiration for tabletop rpgs that will be published by hive mind games and it'll also be on drive through rpg there'll be a pdf softback and a hardback version of that so uh that is me thank you very much so you can find all of my stuff at www.rickhineswrites.com. Um, uh, and the 
all of my stuff is there. Uh, my links, socials, Twitters, everywhere uh, you go. I'm on TikTok. You can tell when I'm in the middle of a project because when I'm between projects, I will post more on things. But when I'm like knee deep in them, I am. I'm this. My novel is my novels are called the Seventh Age series, Seventh Age Dawn and Dystopia. Um, if you like sarcastic fiction about the end of the world um, and you know what happens when the anarchists steal magic from the Illuminati, these Masons, and all these secret societies, and give it to every everybody um take a look uh the second book is all magic returns and companies brand it because if amazon would grind up a unicorn and sell it to you they totally would i freaking love it working on book three right now but also storytellers forge studios we are officially opening up our studio our first major project is going to go to kickstarter at the end of february beginning of march called the black ballad the an epic tale of cleric focused uh, sorry an epic tale uh an epic tale about what to do after you've tpk'd your party a cleric focused adventure set in the afterlife where your party will determine the fate of a resurrection through the entire world for better or worse and this massive sprawling epic tier four campaign and it's gonna be awesome we got like soundtracks all kinds of like crazy elements going into it it's like the red opera just better um and you know i'm i know that it's like it's it's coming along great but if this project works we'll have a whole studio and so our website for storytellers forge will go up in january and things like that we're knee deep in production right now all right and um my personal social media is, is you can find uh my website at thegeekypanda.com um and that is where you will find a list of all of my published materials um both on drive through rpg and off um you can also find me on all the social medias including tiktok but i mostly do videos of my cat right now i haven't quite figured out what i want to do with tiktok um, that's something I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, but you can find all of my social medias at body and soul one, five, two. Um, and then in closing, um, so this series is hosted by darker days radio. Um, so you can find social media for darker days radio at darker days radio at gmail.com. Please email us. If you have questions about the podcast, um, specifically about the series, you can feel free to email, um, or find us on, on, uh, our discord. Uh, facebook.com slash darker days radio at darker days radio for all other social medias, Instagram, Tumblr on tabletop, YouTube, Twitch, and our discord, um, which all three of us are in. Um, so if you have questions, we also do have a mentorship, uh, channel where you can ask questions about it there. Um, I want to thank both of you for coming on and dumping all of this knowledge, um, uh, about the writing process and sharing your experiences and your inner workings and everything like that. Um, you will be able to find all links and everything like that in the show notes, as well as the um, outline for what we discussed on this podcast. So thank you and have a good night. Bye.